I'm excited to present to you the following conversation with Darren Finks. Darren passed away from an unexpected health complication shortly after this podcast was recorded. He was a legend in the field of college admissions and a dear friend. As far as I know, this is the last piece of media that Darren ever recorded. Toward the end of his life, he made it his mission to share everything he knew about college admissions with as many people as possible. In that spirit, here's my conversation with Darren. We will miss you. All right. I am very excited about our guest today. Darren Finks is the former vice president and dean of admission and financial aid at Harvey Mudd College, one of the prestigious Claremont Colleges in Claremont, California. Yes. <laughs> On the high school side, Darren was a director of college counseling at Cranbrook School and Kiskey School. Am I saying that right? Uh, Cranbrook Schools, all of them, and the Kiskey School one. <laughs> but close enough. Yeah. He's a former executive board member of the Western Association of College Admission Counseling and Dean of Faculty Emeritus at the College Board Summer Institute on College Admission and School Relations. And he has consulted to numerous prestigious undergraduate and graduate admissions offices. Darren is currently working as an independent college counselor for individual families. He is at the moment residing in Houston, Texas but he works with students across the country. Uh, he's a longtime friend and colleague, one of my favorite people in the wild world of college admissions. And it's my pleasure to bring Darren Finks to the show today. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Yeah. How are you doing today, Darren? I'm great. I'm great. It's always exciting here. And, and you know, I, I just love things like this because so often people to get the inside information as to what happens on the college admission side. And it's, and it's very, mysterious and and it doesn't have to be and i'm one of those people that likes to demystify it so i love doing things like this so thank you so much for inviting well absolutely and you're one of those few people that have been in this game from every single seat at the table right you've worked in the college admissions office you've worked in the high school counseling office and then you've also worked with individual families where it kind of brings it all together Um, and so, yeah, I, I know everybody's really looking forward to your insights. So let's let's jump into it. What excites you about being a counselor today? Gosh, everything. Um, I, I feel like I have one of those jobs that um, that I paid to do, and I would probably do it for free if I could. But but luckily, I do get paid to do it. So I um, so I, I but because I think it's just such a fun job. Um, the most exciting part. Of, well, let me go back. A lot of things excite me. One is that getting, you know, this this information that I have from from friends who are still deans of admission at colleges throughout the country, and knowing what colleges look for, how testing works, and how applications are read, and what it's like to sit in the admission committee and read applications and know how decisions are made, and that that you know where they try and be as fair as they can, but we're dealing with people, so everybody's different and. And so looking at all of the nuances of, of, of how this process works um, uh, is really exciting for me because I feel like I have some inside information, almost like I know secrets that I can share with everybody else. Um, so that part is really exciting. But I'll tell you the most exciting part about my job today of being a college counselor is the times when I get to sit down with you and just say, what do you dream? What do you want to do how do you want, what do you, how do you want to get there? And then just say, I'm the guy who could help you. 
I'm going to push you that. And, 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 you know, like, like one of the things that, that I've said to other people about this job is that what I like about it is that, is that, you know, it's like, it's kind of, there's a lot of power here. I mean, there's a lot of work because information is power. And I like the power and, and I like to spread the power around. I think that's different from, I think some people feel like, well, I've got power. I'm going to hold on to it. It's going to be mine. I can rule the world. No, I want to give it all away. Because that's when you have them, when people can see how much power you have. It's like, I got so much power, I can just throw it around. (laughs) Right. Well, and that's, and that's how you have real, real impact, right? Is by sharing that and and giving. I know uh, people want to hear about those, those secrets and how it works behind the, behind the closed doors. And we're absolutely going to get to that. But I had a couple of things I wanted to ask about first. Tell me about a student that surprised you at, at one time. Ah, here's one that surprised. Um, so as, as you know, Nick, I was, I was working at a place called, uh, called Harvey Mudd College. Uh, Harvey Mudd is, is, is on anyone's short list of one of the most elected colleges in the country. Test work, great rate, blah, blah, blah. Just like so hard to get into crazy, you know, less than percent admission rates. And, and I remember when I was working there, a student who surprised me is, is a young man who, um, and this is the, this was the fun part about being a dean of as a young man applied from a very, very uh, low-income family. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think the family's on public and um, and he um, and he uh, was from inner-city Los Angeles, from a very, very not-so-great high school. Um, he had amazing grades, but at Harvey Mudd, you know, where the the average math test score is 800. Um, he he had just to be clear is a is a perfect score on that math section is is the average score there. Is a, yes, right. It means that you didn't miss any. That's the average, right? So he had somewhere around a five seventy or almost six hundred, uh, which which in the larger scheme of a place like Harvey Mudd means in most cases that this kid has a really tough shot of getting. But because he had come from this background where all of his teachers and the recommendation were saying, this kid, this kid we've never seen. Like, we have never seen anybody's this kid. And, and then, of course, this is a high school that isn't the most challenging school either. So you might want to sort of let that go and say, oh, okay, well, I mean, it's the best kid you've ever seen, but I've seen better. But there were lots of compelling things about his, the support his teachers were given, the way he wrote his essays and his background. And we just said, you know what? This kid has, you know, with our average test scores being in the mid 1500s and this kid's test scores being 1100 ish, you know what? We're going to think. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and this is a kid who, when we admitted, um, he came in and he struggled for his first semester, but then he kind of over time got picked up and got better and better and better. And I still remember like watching him go through this process of building his strengths and learning and really becoming an amazing, amazing uh, uh, student to the point where when he graduated from us, um, he applied to a bunch of different grad schools, ended up getting into Stanford and MIT for PhD programs. Uh, this kid, Christian is his name. I will never forget this guy because he is just one of those people who you just think, I am so glad I met this when most families are looking at the stats of a given college, you don't know that there was a kid in the mix, right? Because it gets washed out in all the averages and all the rankings. 
that there what there are kids that somebody like you will take a chance on when they have a compelling story and somehow through that application their personality comes through and what they wrote what teachers wrote about them and when we've got really talented people in those admissions offices and there are many of us across the country i mean really talented generous people that that want to make this process fair and transparent and they also want to give different kids from different walks of life a chance these stories sometimes just get lost. Taking it back to my side, I mean, if it's, it's that when I worked on the college side that, that I take to the college counseling side, when I'm working with students, is to, to say, we've got to get a good narrative um, on what is your story? Who are you and how we're going? I mean, so many times kids are concentrating on what I want to get more APs and I want to get more of this and I need to add more activities. I'm like, slow down. As a dean of admission, my job was to admit people, not staff. Like the stats are, they're come on their own. Like the stats are in the pool. I don't need to worry about those. When I spoke to the president of my college for my annual evaluation, he asked me about budget. He asked me about a few other things, you know, about making sure the financial aid budget was in line, blah, blah, blah. But one of the biggest questions I got was, did you create an environment on this campus that is interesting, that is lively, that is attractive, that people want to come to? by the students that you chose. So is that student body that you chose enhancing our community? He wasn't asking me about, did the averages go higher? Did the averages go lower? He was asking me about the community. And so when I'm looking at an application when I was a dean of admission, you know, I'm concerned more about who you are as a person, not the number of boxes you check. And did you get this seat? Did you get this map? Did you do that? Most people have done that. And even if you didn't, I can work around if you've got something compelling to bring. Right, right. Well, and that gets lost in the shuffle too with a lot of families that are going through this process. It absolutely helps to be able to check those boxes in terms of the grades and the scores. But after that, that student still needs to have something to say. They need to have an idea of who they want to become, where they want to go in life. Simply being able to fill every single box on the, on the resume uh, or or adding those extra activities isn't necessarily going to make you pop when somebody reads your application. Right. And we do have to be careful about when students are so overwhelmed with doing so much that there's not any time left over for reflection, for introspection, to think about the future. It feels like a stats arms race yeah. when you're when you're a parent and your kid is going yeah. through this. But one of the best things a parent can do for their student is give them a little time and space to figure out who they are. So when they write that application is having something to say and knowing, having an idea of who they are and, and where they want to go and how a particular college will help them get to that place, become that person. I, I did want to ask, what's the number one mistake that you see kids make today? I think the biggest mistake I see is and I can put this over everything that students do, whether it's it's sort of like the classes they take or the or the the teachers they choose for the recommendations or or the topics they write in their essays, is they 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 make the mistake of, of trying to to feed an admission office what they think they want to hear. You, you will never win that because you have no idea who is on the other end of reading that application. So the only thing you can do 
is be yourself and say, this is who I am and cross your fingers. Because if you try and create a sort of morph yourself into something you think a dean of is going to like, you miss the boat because you don't know who you are. Trying to please everyone, you usually end up pleasing no one. Exactly right. It's a great way. I saw an essay recently about this young lady who, she was very, had extremely strong stats, clearly had spent a lot of time studying, working hard, <clears throat> very prim and, and proper uh, young lady. And, and she wrote this essay about how when she would get stuck <clears throat> uh, writing a paper at home, she would lash out and curse at her computer screen and just let it all go and really, really give it to that, uh, to that computer screen. It was such an off the wall topic. It just rang with truth. Uh, you, you really, there, she wasn't making this up. She clearly wasn't trying to impress anyone. It wasn't a story that would say, Hey, uh, I'm going to sneak in a bunch of humble brags here about how, right. how smart I am and how great my grades are. It was real. And it spoke to her, sometimes her frustration at working so hard and, and all this time and energy she put into her classes and her personality just came flying through in this essay. And I, I thought it was just such a wonderful example of how sometimes that, that unexpected or just taking a chance can really make you pop in this process. And she got in all over the place, oh, uh, I great. think, because, because it's an unexpected combination of the kid with the really high scores, the really strong grades and all the AP classes. And then here she is dropping a bunch of F-bombs at her <laughs> computer screen late at night and, and isn't afraid to tell people about it. Right, right. I, and that's the key. And I think that fearlessness is what makes a great essay. And, and also the, the unexpected. Um, when you said that, when you gave that example, I immediately thought of a young woman who I was working with here as one of my, uh, one of my counselees. She's a um, she's a water polo player, and she is very hard charging and like like kind of tough. She could she could take you out in a hot second. Like she was having trouble trying to generate an essay, and I kept asking her questions because you know one of the things that, that I do in my job when I'm helping families, of course, is just to try to draw the best out of you. And uh, and she was saying, "Well, I've been worried about water polo." I'm like, no, you have water polo on your resume. You have water. They, we already know your water polo skills. Like, well, I can write about how wonderful made you. No, no, no. We're not going to talk about how wonderful has made you a good person or a tough person or whatever. We're doing nothing having to do with wonderful. So we're bouncing ideas. And she's like, I don't know. This is Dave. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to write about. And then finally, she said, oh, I love Disney movie. I was like, wait, the hard charging water polo girl who is like, loves Disney movies? I was just like, well, not all Disney movies. Just the ones about I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and so, and, so, and I was like, well, well, and, and I, and I just made this offbeat remark. I just said, well, well, let me ask you a question, and I want you to think about this before you respond. Are you a princess? And she's like, well, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> it's like the hard charging waterfall girl's a princess. It's like, okay, write it down, <laughs> write it down. And she wrote this beautiful essay about. About what, about, first of all, that princesses, Disney princesses have all had, most of them have had really tough lives. Like their dads have died or they're, or they've been pulled out of their kingdom. Their parents are always dying. Yeah. The, yeah. Right. The parents are always dying. It's like, she's like, yeah. And I have had some tough times in my life too. It's made me kind of a tough person, but 
princesses are badass cop. And folks like, you know what? You're right. Princesses are badass cop. And it was just a beautiful essay about how she, how this, and because when you read her narrative and you read the things your teachers say about her, it's like, oh man, this girl's a guy. She's going to, she's going to plow through. She's going to think there's nothing holds her back. She can take on the world. I'm just a princess. <laughs> it was great. It was really great. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. All right, let's jump into some of that insider knowledge. Give me a quick overview of how college admissions works. Uh, let's pretend I know nothing about this and I've got a junior in high school and I say, Darren, what do I do? How do I even begin the process? So, so let's start from the very, I think the biggest mistake, one of the big mistakes people make is that they go immediately right. Like I want my kid to go to one of the top schools. So boom, let's get that. I like to start with saying that is the worst way to start thinking about college. The first inventory doesn't come from what colleges are out there. The first inventory comes from who am I and what do I need? What kind of environment do I want? What kind of people do I want to hear? What kind of uh, atmosphere? Because if, if you're a Southern Californian and the idea of going to a snowy, cold environment is not your choice, why are you looking at Boston? Because every statistic out there tells you if you're not happy with the physical environment of your college environment, you will not do well so, so thinking about who you are as a person and what you want out of that experience is going to be the first thing that you But the other people make is they find the one college that they think is their dream school, a term I never use. Because the fact is that for every student who's going to college, there could be anywhere from 50 to 300 schools where they could be perfectly happy. At. And we see this all the time on the college counseling side when a student comes to us and says, oh, Mr. Banks, I have to go to blah, blah, blah. I have to go to blah, blah, blah. And they don't go to blah, blah, blah. But then they go somewhere else. Nine times out of 10, they say, this is the best situation for me. I'm really glad I didn't get into blah, 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 because I would have never found this. And so, and that's not an accident. I mean, most of us go, oh, well, that's great. But we know that this happens because it happens in it. Because there are many fits for you, not just one. So the good thing about, about once you get to that place of understanding what you're looking for as a student and as a family is to move into which colleges fit that and how many of those can we, can we apply to to make sure that we get to the, any of the schools on our list of of eight, 10, however many schools you apply to, that any of that would be happy. And that's the goal. And that is speaks to the value that a really talented college counselor can bring to this process simply by being aware of the breadth of schools that are out there. I mean, we've got 2,000 plus four-year colleges across the country that's pretty tough to, if you're just a parent coming into this or just a student coming into this, to have an idea of what they're all like. And I think uh, somebody like you can really add a lot of useful information to that process and saying, hey, have you considered X, Y, and Z schools? One of the reasons people hire people like me is because everyone has their expertise. If you work in the marketing world, you know that. If you work in, in the tech world, you know that. I know college. And that's what I know. And then I'm an expert in that area. And if you want someone to guide you, then you need to hire an expert. Let's, let's jump into the components of the application. Sure. 
basically we've, we've got we've got grades, we've got scores, we've got letters of recommendation, we've got the essays, the resume of activities. How do all these come into play? How do they work together? Which ones are important? Which ones aren't? I, I think they're all important, but let's talk about that a little bit. They are all important. Let's start there. But some are more important than others, for sure. And I will tell you that, that there is a national survey that is done by the National Association of College Admission Counseling every year. And, it, and they do it every single year. And the answer is always the same. If ranking all of those things that you just listed, what's the most important aspect? on that, uh, of, of that list. And hands down, number one is always going to be what's on the transcript because that is probably the most closely related to what's happening on a college. When you're in high school, you're going to listen to your teacher talk. You're going to read some books. You're going to take some tests and then you're going to, uh, and you're going to write some papers. When you get to college, you're going to listen to your teacher talk. You're going to read some books. You're going to take some tests and you're going to write some papers. So if you're doing that already, that's the best way to predict that you can do it again when you get to college. Uh, now, given that, there are other ancillary aspects around this that matter as well, because the next thing that tends to come into play for those schools that require testing is the test. Because the test is always looked at, if, if a college is doing it correctly, they're always looking at the test in conjunction with the trend. So, and the reason for that is to think, if you think of it this way, there are so many different schools, high schools in this country that teach in very different ways. I, I mentioned one of the ones I talked about, there's city of LA, where there's gang violence and there's poor teaching and there's not great facilities and there's not great budget compared to there's so 40 schools on the East Coast where they have, you know, I, I worked in that has a half billion dollar endowment, the best labs that you can have a campus that most college representatives will come to and say, we can't compete with your high school campus. You know, so, uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, so I've worked at, at, I've seen the extremes of these and I know that learning is different. So what the test work does though, is it says, okay, I can't tell exactly what's going on at um, George Washington High School in St. Louis, but I also can't tell exactly what's going on at a private boarding school in Michigan. So how can I compare these two kids somewhat, even though I know they're completely different environments? So the idea was this, okay, well, what if I take all of the kids in the country and I wake them up at exactly the same time and I walk them to the same place at the same time in the same over air conditioned room and I give them the same pencil and I give them the same test. Would that give me a better idea of how these two students look? Now, it's still not exacting, but it's closer than, say, compare school to that. And I can be able to say, your high school, and given your, your test, I get a better idea of how you might compare to someone else from this title with their yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that common yardstick. As, as we know, but I think it always bears repeating, does it tell us a lot of value about a particular kid and who they are and who they're going to become? But it's one other metric that is the same across the board for all these different students when we're trying to decide at a given school who's going to get in, who isn't. Right. I've been to the Cranbrook schools. It's nicer than most college campuses. <laughs> 
very difficult to compare that kid to to a student like you, right? That was coming out of a high school in in Compton when you were a kid, and and something that where at least okay, they had this one experience uh, that that is that is the same one helps to add some just add some light to who they who they might be and what they're capable of. And, and I think that's the thing is that that people have to keep in mind too is that to keep to take the weight off of that test score. Like in most cases, I'd say in and definitely 80, maybe even 90 percent of the cases, your test scores reflect your high school. It just is. This is not necessarily to be new information or shocking information to a dean of admission. If you go to a high school that has world class facilities and you're doing great work there, I'm assuming you're going to do great work on the SAT. If you're going to a school that doesn't have the resources, then I'm going to look at that test differently because it's not that you can't work or that you don't have what it just that you haven't been given the opportunity. So, so that's why a kid from city Los Angeles might get into Harvey Mudd with an 1100 test score, where a kid from Cranbrook with an 1100 test score, who's been given all the advantages of this amazing education and still has not performed on the grades and or testing, wouldn't get the opportunity because, because there was more, more for you to do and you did not have, they were able to do it. This kid's doing everything they can with what little they're given. So you're looking at potential versus you had it and you didn't use it. And I'll tell you, when I was at Harvey Mudd, when I looked at test scores and grades, we knew that we were not able to predict whether if the student came here, they would be an A student, or if the student came here, they'd be minus student. We knew that that was something that we weren't very good at predicting, but we could say, can this student graduate or can this student not graduate? And so once we, that was the initial look at, at transcripts and grades. Can they graduate or not graduate? It's a yes or no question. And if the answer is yes, then let's move on and look at who we're bringing. Who is this? What are they going to bring to our community? And when I go back to my president and he says, why did you admit that kid? I want to be able to say he's because he's bringing this amazing perspective or he's got this amazing skill or he's an amazing athlete or he's. He's got, got, you know, he, he's going to make a great roommate for somebody or, you know, that kind of thing. I'm looking at the other aspects of them at this point to build a community. Building a community is my job. That's what my job is. Let's be frank. If my job was to admit the highest test scores and the highest grades, you don't need me. You don't need people. You just need a computer algorithm. But no, my job is not to admit the highest grades and test scores. My job is to build an interesting community. Now, this goes back to what I said earlier, is that don't try and tell me that you're interesting. Tell me who you are. So you can't, you can't tell us what we want to hear. You just have to be you and apply appropriately. And then just to summarize the grades and the <laughs> scores that basically we're just trying to answer the question, yes or no, can the student do the work? And then we're moving on to the other pieces. And those pieces would be personal yeah. statement, letters of recommendation, everything they get to write about themselves in the application. Right. Yeah. Talk to me about how those things come together to create <laughs> a narrative about a student and, and then how they're determining if that student would be, would be a good fit for that community and, and what's going to make them stand out. Let's, let's go through them one by one. So, um, so after, after looking at the test scores and grades, uh, one of the things that I like to see next in an application is so the, what do you do with your time? The activity. A lot of families have this myth in their head that there's a, Checklist. And it's like, okay, we need some volunteering work and we need some credit and we need some art and we need some this, we need some that. Um, 
And, and that is far from the case. I mean, I, for me, I mean, well, let's be clear. That's not even human nature. It's humans don't do that. Humans mm. don't run around doing a lot of things. They usually find one or two things they like and they just dive in. And that's what you need to work on. You know, I think colleges love to see students who have, who have chosen a few select activities and have really just sort of embraced them. And whether that's theater, whether that's music, computer programming, whether that's game design, whether whatever it is, it, it is your in athletics, uh, art, um, they, people tend to gravitate towards things they like. People don't say, well, you know, I really hate volunteering, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, that's not what you can do. <laughs> you know, and by the way, if you hate <laughs> volunteering, please don't volunteer. No agency wants someone who hates being there volunteering. Don't do it. Um, and, uh, and, uh, or, or whatever it is you feel like you quote unquote need to do. Don't do what feels right to you. Dive in and become an expert at it. Become really good at that one thing. And, is it okay to try a few things and find out you like something? And of course, you that's going to happen. But eventually, you'll hit on something that you love doing and you just want to dive in. And it is that passion for whatever that thing is that we find attractive on the on the uh, on the college side when you're reading out. I don't have to be a person who loves theater to appreciate someone who really loves theater um, and and be happy for them that they love. Um, you know, even, even, you know, I, you know, I, I think most of us have, in today's age, most of us have a particular view on politics. I still remember reading, um, reading essays about people who firmly believe in a political stance that I, as a dean of admission, completely disagree with. But I still admit those people because it's their passion that I really enjoy. It's the fact that they're so committed and have done their research and believe erroneously what they believe. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> what they believe that makes uh, that that makes them an attractive candidate, that makes them interesting. Because they're going to bring a perspective to my kids that that they're going to stand behind and hold up. And so you don't even have to worry about offending some, some of us if, if, if need be. Just like you said when a, when a student wrote you know, yelling her thing and dropping the F-bomb at her computer. Okay, like, hey, yeah, people with, some people might say, oh, you don't want to say you did the F-bomb. She did, and it worked, <laughs> you know? Right. Because you know why? We've used it once or ourselves. <laughs> right, <laughs> Just right. Just once or twice, though, not beyond that. <laughs> right. Um, so, so, I mean, it, so that's what, the, uh, that's what the activities are about, diving into something and really giving it your all. Let's talk about future recommendations. It is so, those things are very important too, especially at the small um, liberal arts colleges where they're they're looking at at how you, what you're doing with your uh, with your academics because participation in a small college is going to be really important. You talked about it before. Teachers want to discuss with you. They want to be able to have conversations. They want you to think outside the box. They want to have a debate in class with you. And so, if you're the kind of student who's, who would rather be a person who kind of sit in the back and just kind of listen, really wanted to say, I just want to get my degree and get out of here. But maybe a small liberal arts college isn't for you. Um, but, but there are places for you. And that's the beauty of college. And your teacher recommendations are going to talk a little bit about what you're like as in, in the classroom. Uh, and that's going, to be, that's going to be instrumental in helping them decide whether or not you're a good match for how teaching is done on that particular college. 
And then there is also going to be something called a school report, usually written by the council. It's kind of also sometimes called the counselor letter that most colleges and, uh, and that's not by a person like me who you may have hired because we're biased because we, of course, are going to love you. Um, but you're going to, this is your high school counselor who's going to be writing this. And the high school counselor's job basically is to talk about what you're like as a citizen in your high school. So they'll talk about um, what you're like with other students on campus, what teachers, what teachers think about you, about the kinds of activities you've been involved in. Um, about uh, maybe about something about your family life or things like that, if, if it's pertinent to the application. And so that gives us more of a context of who you are as a person. So, so I've got my son or daughter and they're in a high school, big public high school. There's 3,000 plus students and mm -hmm. my high school counselor has 300, maybe more students. Maybe that, more, 800 is the average in the country. There you go. Uh, that that they're supposed to write something about. How yeah. do I, or or as that student, how do I give them something to say? Sure, sure. Okay, so this is a really important aspect. Most high schools that do a good job of this, even the larger ones, um, are doing this by um, by getting information directly from students and families. So if our high school sends you a questionnaire. It says, you know, sometimes they call it a brag sheet or, or just a high school counseling questionnaire, something like that that comes out during your late junior or early senior year. They're gathering information about you that you give. And so one of the mistakes that students make is that they don't spend enough time on it. So they'll say, tell me a little bit about your activities. You're like, well, I'm doing this. Okay, now, give more information. Talk about, I'm doing this and why I like it. And this is why I'm into it. And this is what's going on because this is the only way your counselor at a large school is going to be able to get that information to put it in a letter in an effective way that's going to help you along the way. Now, let me let me put this out there first. We on the, the folks who are reading applications understand this situation that high school counseling is is a mess and that counselors have little time. Not only are they trying to help you get to college, but they might be doing crisis counseling or, or psychological counseling, what have you. And, and the, the college counseling aspect of this is somewhere way down on the bottom. So these, so they understand that and they're reading it with that content. I think everything that we go back to, just like we talked about test scores and different high schools, everything's in context. Colleges get that, but they don't expect that your counselors actually know you one-on-one -on -one if they have a counseling load of eight. If your counselor does not offer you a project, or if it's not something that comes up, I would highly recommend that you get yourself to get put together a resume for yourself of your activities, of your background, of things that are important to you, and you make sure that counselor gets it. And this is for my college letters. If there's anything you need from me, please let me know. I'm happy to give you more. I'm happy to sit down and talk with you. I'm happy to do what I need to do to do that. Now. There are going to be some schools out there becoming more and more sadly that are saying, we don't do that letter. We don't, we don't have time. We're not going to try to do it. We're not going to pretend. We're not going to get a brash sheet. We're just not going to do it. We're going to send a letter. We don't do this to colleges. And that's okay. Colleges, colleges understand that and they not count that against you. That is not your fault. It's not even the school's fault. It's nobody's fault. It just is the 
So don't worry if that's going to be the situation that you're in, because colleges, we have, I've admitted thousands of kids to crazy selectives to institutions who have not had that. Bad. And then finally, the most telling aspect about whether or not this is a student is going to be a fit for institution are the personal stakes, the essays and, and things that you write. Because this is, if you think about it, I've, I've gotten a chance to read your application, which gives me some demographic background. Where are you from? Where do you, what do your parents do? Um, where'd you grow up? Uh, do you speak another language? I've gotten your transcripts, so I know what you've been doing in the classroom. I've gotten your test scores. I know your performance and those tests. I've seen your recommendations. I know what people think about you. There's only one voice I have not heard, and that's you. I have not heard what you think. And this is the last thing that most of us read in the application because you have the final word. And so it becomes very important that that essay be something that epitomizes who you are. Now, 650 words. A lot of people make the mistake of saying, I'm going to tell you everything about me in 650 words. 18 years and 650 words is not going to fit. <laughs> There's no way. So what you have to do is you have to find one aspect of who you are as a person and illustrate. And that is show. No. Don't tell me you're a good person. Show me. Give me an example. What is it that makes you the person who you are? Why is it that people like you? The best thing you can do for that essay is after you've written it, give it to a close friend who can rubber for you and say, does this sound like me? And maybe it's just one aspect of who you are. Maybe it's the fact that, you, um, that you've always been involved in theater your whole life because it has really changed who you are as a person. The first step put on stage, you realize this was your calling. And that's what your essay is about. But this, this little snippet of who I am is what I want you to know. And, so, and it's almost like you're saying, here's just a little peek of who I am. Want to know more? You have to admit me to find out more. And so telling a story, it sounds like, is, is an important part of that. To illustrate who you are, what you're, what you're really about with a story that, that shows instead of tells. That's right. When, if you were to write and making this up, if you were to write about, about a theater experience, don't say, oh my gosh, I love theater. From the moment I set foot on stage, it was the best thing that's ever happened. No, no. Take me somewhere. Like, walk me through. So, so you start me off right here where I walk out of stage, the lights are in my face, and I'm staring at this audience. And I know I'm supposed to stay alive, but it's just not coming to me. Oh, wait, there it is. And I say it. And then my partner says their line and I say my line and the crowd roars with laughter. Yeah. I'm in. I'm yeah. in. I, and, and you know what? As a dean of admission, that's what I want to be there with you. I want to be a part of it. Again, I'm admitting people. I'm not admitting stats. Take me with you. I want to go on that journey with you. Show me what you're doing. I want to be right there by your side. I want to be in that audience. I want to be the person across stage from you watching this happen. This is what I want to experience in that essay. Not just to tell me what you're doing. Show it to me. Yeah, I got a little, I got a little nervous when you told that story. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, it was just, oh, what's going to happen? Is the kid going to remember the line? Immediately engaged. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you freezing up? And so get me on the journey with you. So I'm going to read like literally thousands of essays in, in a few months to get through them. Please entertain me. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs> Show me. As, a, as, as someone who reads a lot of essays, I can get through, I can get through a 650-word essay in like 
less than a minute or so just by scanning it. Because for the most part, they're all pretty standard. But the minute I read that opening sentence and you get me hooked, I'm reading every word. And that's what you want. You don't want me to scan your resume. You want me to read it. And you want me to enjoy reading. And so that when I'm done, I have a smile on my face going like, oh my gosh, that was such a great essay. Guess what I'm going to say? Like, I'm going to fight for this kid. A, th- a thousand essays later, you remember that, the kid on the stage. Yeah. A thousand essays later, you still remember it. That, that, oh, that's one of the secrets <laughs> right there. That is the secrets. One, 100%. It's all secrets, really. We, the reason we all get into this is because we love people. We're not in it for the stats. We're in it for people. And so if you can humanize your application in any way, you're going to win so Because so many people make the mistake. Look at how big my test scores are. Look at how big my grades are. Like, no, no I don't care. You know, I, I want to know who you are. And that's the key. How is that piece of it different if I apply to a school like UCLA? To use an example, a big public university, more than 100,000 applications every year. How's that process different there? It is quite different. But when you have that kind of volume of application, there's no way you can look at it like looking at it at the liberal arts places at the smaller companies. Because one, you're state funded, right? So you have to serve your state population. Two, you have to be very fair. And, and the only way to be fair, to be objective about the numbers, not the essays, not things like that. Because anyone could call a law student and say, oh, well, you did that, you did that. But if you use the numbers, nobody can argue. So it becomes a little bit more numbers oriented. However, even so, even so I do that there are people on those staff who are making those decisions who are looking for people aspects as well. They still want to have a good community. They're still wanting to have a diverse interest among their students. But on the larger scheme of things, there is a standard that you have to meet. And meet the standard, you're kind of in. And if you don't meet the standard, you're kind of in. Let's turn to scores, especially in California, right, where the, where the UCs have said we're not going to look at them anymore. And so a lot of people are confused over whether or not those scores still matter at all the other colleges, whether they're in California or, or the rest of the country. What does that look like today? Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of a crazy Wild West playing field in so many different ways. So there are very few colleges and or systems like the UCs that say we want them at all. Either you see a lot of schools that are saying test optional or test flexible, or um, or we require the test. The UCs are one, and there are others besides the UCs, but the UCs are one where it's like no test. For me, as, as someone who has worked with the test and has worked in some places without the test, I always like the idea of saying, if you, if you have another piece of information about a student that you can use, it's nice to have, because soon you can use it, or you can not use it. If you send me a test, I might say, oh, there's a good test. I'm going to use this. Or I might say, mm, okay, there's this test here. It's low. It just, I mean, I'm looking at the, the recommendations. I'm looking at the applications. I'm looking at the, the, the transcript. I'm looking at everything. Like, it's the one thing that doesn't fit. Everything else about this kid looks amazing. Here's one thing that just seems out. Uh, the UCs have said that they don't want it at all. And I, I actually I think that's a bit short sighted because it might tell you something about one kid or five kids or 50 kids or, in their case, 10,000 kids. For them, 
this goes back to that whole state oversight aspect where it's sort of like, if you use it for one, you have to use it for all because that's the fair thing to do. So if you don't want to use it for one, then you have to get rid of all. Of it. So it's like throwing the baby out with the bath. So I actually like the fact that when schools are saying that we will use the test if you send it to us and we won't use the test if you don't send it to us. Now, I have to give a caveat there because there are some unspoken rules. This is one of those secrets that unspoken rules that go with not using that test or using the test. One of the things about the test that is uh, unfortunate, I won't even say unfair, because it reflects the school systems more than anything, is that the higher your income level, the more likely you are to score higher on SAT. And that has been proven, been proven over and over and over. Now, I would argue that the reason for that is that the higher your income, the higher your property taxes, and therefore the better your school. Um, so it's not just the money aspect, it's the fact that if you live, in Costa Mesa, you're going to have better schools than they do in Compton, and therefore you'll have benefits. Given that aspect, and you are a higher income sort of family, and you opt not to take the test or not to submit the test, I think most highly selective schools will assume that you have chosen not to submit the test because you didn't do well, and you probably should have given your background. Whereas if you are from a lower income area and you chose not to submit the test, you probably didn't do well, but maybe it's because you just didn't have the resources to do well on that. And so even though you don't submit that test, some colleges, especially at the higher selective, are going to make assumptions as to why. What I'm hearing from you is it, it, when you're looking, if you're on the college side and you're looking at a student who's coming from Beverly Hills or Newport Beach, California, and they didn't submit a test score, you might interpret that differently than if the student is from Santa Ana. Right, right. I'm not. Yes, exactly. And, and by the way, demographic data, as far as where you live, how much your house is worth, all those kind of things, readily available. So even, even if they've never heard of your tiny community, they can very quickly find out what your tiny community is. If you are a student who is from a family that can afford to do tests and afford to get help with test prep, I highly recommend you do and that you submit for. Uh, because it is almost, can't say completely, but almost expected of you. But generally speaking, the scores are, again, they're always going to be looked at in conjunction with the transcript. I never would look at a score and make an admission solely without seeing a transcript. Both of those things go together. And the, and the validity of the score is much, much higher when you pair it with a transcript than it is if you look at the score. And without a transcript, the test score is, gives you some indication, but not very You pair a transcript with it, then you've got a lot. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that... MIT, in their recent statement about test scores, when they removed the testing component of it during the COVID lockdowns and they didn't have the test scores, that they, they found it actually really hurt their students who are coming from low-income areas because they wanted that little extra 
piece of information. I can tell you that that even if I got no score from a kid from a poor, um, not so resourced high school, um, that score was still helpful to me to say, is there a foundation? Is there something there that I can put my hat on that says, okay, he may not be in AP Cal now, but if I get him here, he can we can get him up to speed really quickly. So that that sort of gave me that foundational like, no, it's not very high, but it tells me enough to know we we're we're going somewhere. And so that's so I think that's what MIT found as well. Tell me how admissions has changed from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because I think a lot of the time parents come to this process thinking that it's the it's the same lay of the land as it was when when they applied. That might be more than 20 years ago. Well, you know, when you say 20 years ago, the media began to promote this. Uh, U.S. News and World Report, the stakes are so much higher. I miss those days where it's just sort of like, you know, you just go to school to go to school. You don't go to school for prestige. You don't go to school to build a network. You don't go to school to get connections. You, you go to school because you want to work. But uh, but things have changed tremendously from from those from those days and uh, and now schools are in in some ways a status symbol. You know you want to be able to put that bumper sticker on your on, on your on your back window that says the college name that people will give you immediate validity because you went there kind of thing, which which I think is is just misguided because education is a personal aspect. It's going to take you personally for, to your goals, to where you want to be in the future. Not necessarily to impress your neighbor. But who cares what your neighbor thinks about where you went to school? For growing up back then, things were much simpler because it's sort of like, look, I have a really good education. And the University of Auburn is not a name that people know. My classmates are, um, one owns a, a, a chain of urgent care. Um, centers. One owns is, is, is a world-renowned journalist. One, you know, like I know people who are doing amazing things from this tiny little college that was like has no name. Is it because of the college? No, it's because they got a really good education and they knew what to do with it. And that's what colleges do. I, I was just talking to a young man today who was saying, "Oh, I'm applying to all these big name schools." He mentioned my team. That I said, "You do realize that selectivity." It's just another word for that. That is just that these schools are popular. It's not like they're better believe because I can tell you as someone who has studied engineering school and has visited hundreds of engineering school campuses, MIT has been, but I know there are better programs out there. And I said to him, so I said, so what you're telling me is that the popular schools are the best school. He's like, yeah. He's like, so the popular kids at your high school, those are the best kids, right? Yeah, well, no, they're not the best kid. Oh, well, they're popular. Therefore, there must be a reason. You know, no, they're not the best kid. They, they, they just happen to be popular. That's not a measure of quality. How many applications you get a year is not a measure of quality of institution. It's just a measure of how well known you are. So I do recognize that there's empirical data that comes from some colleges that are able to say, say we're better at career placement or we're better at internships than some, or we're better at, at what have you than financial aid than some. But what should be right for you? Like, what's going to be the most important aspect for you as a student? Not 
going with the flow of everybody else says this is the good one, so it must be the good one. One of my pet peeves out there are these social media sites. Like, oh, this college is not great, and this college is great. And a lot of kids, I've had several kids who put way there, they, they put everything on that rating. And I said, okay, you know how trolling works, right? One person jumps on, and then another person piles on that, and piles on that, and piles on that. And all of a sudden, everybody's saying, this is the worst place in the world. Is it? Or is it just that people like complaining on the internet anonymously? <laughs> well, they clearly like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost like we have too much information. Because what you like about a college is not going to be what I'm about. It's not going to be what Nick likes about a college. So it becomes really important for you to sort of blur out all of that noise and think about what does I need to have in order to have the best educational experience that I need? Do I need it to be a large school? Do I need it to be a small school? Do I need it to be close to home? Because my family is my rock and I need to depend on them. Or do I just really need to get over from my parents? Um, those are the kind of things you need to weigh. I agree. It would be really healthy to get back to a place that isn't so focused on getting in somewhere and back to what are you going to do when you get there? How hard are you going to work? What are you going to put into it? We all know people that did not go to big name brand colleges or perhaps didn't go to college at all and are doing something with their life that they love, that they are successful at, they're they're thriving in in what they're doing. There is no school with the monopoly on on your path to success. Uh, and I and I firmly believe what we put into that those four years or five or six years while we're there is what really makes the difference. Do you actually read the books that are assigned to you in, in some of your classes? Are, you know, do you get interested? Do you dive deep into stuff? That's what will make the difference in the, in the long run in somebody's career, in their life. Not just, oh my gosh, when you were 17, what college decided to let you in and, and what is their brand standing? I still remember when I was working at my first college and the term marketing and it was sort of like, why would we do? We're a college. We're not. We're not selling Xerox copiers. We're we're a college. And but now that is that is big business. And and you know, whole cottage industries have sprung up from my industry of independent high school counseling has sprung up because of the noise that families are saying, "Oh, we can't sort through it. We need an expert to help us figure it out." One last topic that is a it's a big one. Okay, but let's just let's just scratch the surface a little bit which is money, financial aid, how that should factor in into where you choose to go. Somehow, these colleges just become more and more expensive each year. I mean, we've got a number of schools topping $60,000, $70,000, if not more than that, each year. I think that's, a, that's one that weighs big on a lot of families, but they don't necessarily always want to talk about it publicly. The escalating cost of education is, is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and it's not. I mean, I can tell you that the cost of education has gone up tremendously and that most colleges are charging a tuition that is actually less than they would, that they actually have to pay out per student in order to educate that kid, which, uh, which that difference is made up from donations and, and alumni. And, but even so, for a, the average family to have to come up with 70 grand in just tuition, in some cases, that doesn't even prove room and board. That is, undoable. 
was a lot of us have worked to a place where um, where we've got good careers, we make good money, we're not going to qualify for a lot of need-based financial aid because the cost of living is just so high that there's no way we would be able to afford our families in the way that we could if we did make that low of income. So it just makes it really tough. So the key to this is just to make sure that you are doing a couple things. One, that you're stopping around. Um, one of the things, you know, a lot of colleges uh, are going to be giving out merit scholarships, and it's important for you to know who they are and what they're doing. And, and real quick, will you just tell us what a merit scholarship is versus a need-based scholarship? Sure. So need-based scholarships are is financial aid based solely on financial need. That is to say that you have um, that based on family's income and or assets, you you are not making enough money to in order to afford this at all. Now, need-based scholarships, it, it sounds like need because all of us like, well, I need scholarship. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's a federal formula that colleges will use to determine whether or not a family has financial need or not. And generally speaking, if you're making a six-figure salary, you are probably not going to get a lot. You still could get some, but you're probably not going to get a lot of need-based financial. So most families who are, who are making in the six figures are going to be counting on merit scholarship. And what a merit scholarship is, is that's a scholarship that's given up based on either grades or talent or any number of different things that a college might. A, a football scholarship is a merit scholarship. A academic scholarship is a merit scholarship based on G. A violin scholarship is a merit scholarship based on talent. Some colleges have a, a lot of colleges have a blanket idea that says, if you have a certain GPA and or a certain test score, then you will qualify X amount of money in merit scholarships. Now, here's the key to that. If you're applying to one of the more uber selective colleges, you will not find very many merit scholarships, mainly because everyone who goes there has a big GPA and big test scores. So there's nothing special about you than the rest of their pool. However, at, at a lot of colleges, if, if money isn't you, but next year down from that, they do offer merit scholarships because they want to promote their academic profile. They want to be more selective. They want to have a higher quality of student. They want students who are going to be in the classroom who are going to set the tone that says this is the high level of thinking in this classroom and bring your students up to that level. So they want students who are going to be there to do that. In order to get them, they would, if they can lower their tuition a little bit by giving a tuition discount or a merit scholarship, then that would help that student choose them over maybe another student. Now, one of the ways to find out, go to each college's website, their financial aid website. Usually those things are published, but even if they're not published, Every college uh, on uh, every college financial aid website has a financial need calculator where you can go in and put in your family situation, GPA, maybe come, whatever they're asking for, and they can give you a pretty good estimate of what you might get if that were admitted to, to the school. Now, if you are a family that should be applying for financial aid, and by the way, there is no income ceiling on determining who can get financial aid or not. I, when I was in Harvey Mudd, I have seen, rarely, but I have seen families with $200,000, $250,000 income qualify for need-based financial aid, basically because they have uh, debts or something behind that 
that offsets that to a place where it's like, we get it. You don't have lots of money, so we'll do that. Um, keep in mind that uh, that consumer debt, your credit cards, things like that, that doesn't count. Um, it would have to be something else. So maybe you have a business. I'll also tell you this, that if you are a family that thinks you won't qualify for need-based financial aid, but you choose to apply for need-based financial aid, it's actually not a bad idea to do. Because I know when I was at Harvey Mudd, my director of finance used to say, look, this is a family with a $500,000 income. They've applied for need-based financial aid. I mean, they clearly feel like they need something. I can't give them much because they are income, but I'm going to take a couple thousand dollars off. Now, that might mean something to you because for my financial aid budget, which is millions of dollars, give me a couple thousand. Whatever, I'm fine with that. Just like you're applying for colleges to make sure that you have a balanced list where there's some that are going to be really hard to get into and some that are going to be relatively safer for you to get into. You'd have to do the same thing for your financial aid. This is one that's going to be really hard to pay for, but because of their merit scholarship, this is one that we can certainly make sure we can afford. And if you can be happy at either one of those, let's see how it comes out. I still remember when I was a dean of admission at Harvey Mudd and we 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 hit the $50,000. And I thought, I said, oh my gosh, nobody's going to pay this. Nobody's going to pay this. We're going to be, we're never going to get a class. Nobody's going to pay this. They did. And then it went to 60 and they did. And then it went to 70 and they did. Part of it is just that, that it, it, it seems to be, there seems to be no limit, you know, which, uh, which, which unfortunately, and, and I don't think how colleges are guard gouging people. I mean, because like I said, it, it costs about a hundred grand to educate a kid through Harvey Mudd today. And it's most of the they charge about the but it's still costing more than that. So. It's just the reality of the situation that everything's expensive. I think you make a really good point there, though, which is sometimes gets lost in the conversation. The amount of resources that an expensive college pours into each individual yeah. student. The more high touch a school is, like yours was, like it wasn't probably much, the more expensive that is. You know, it's much, much cheaper to educate a kid and, and at the University of California, where you have this this economy of scale, right? Um, you know, you put five kids in the classroom. Great. One teacher, five hundred kids. Well, when you're trying to do have a when you have a class where where there's no class larger than twenty, well, that's gonna cost you, you know. Well, Darren, thank you so much. This has been very insightful and what a joy. <laughs> I really appreciate your time and I hope that we do it again soon. We could spend an entire episode just talking about some of these individual topics. Absolutely. I have a inkling here that people will be asking for that down the line. Well, I am happy to provide again, more, the more secrets I can get out there, the more knowledge it makes me happy. This is, this is mission. So I appreciate the platform. Thank you so much for having me. Again, thank you for coming. It was just a wonderful conversation and I look forward to doing it again soon. Next time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You take care. Thank you for listening to the Nick Stanley podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, like, and comment. The best way to support this podcast is to visit our sponsors in the description. Have an excellent day. Hey.